We left off last time in the Burda of Imam al-Busiri on the line wherein uh, the Imam rahimahullahu ta'ala said Muhammadun Sayyidun Kawnaini Wathaqalaini Walfariqaini Min Urbin Wamin Ajami. So he said, Radiallahu An, that Muhammad is the master, he is the Sayyid of both abodes, of both kinds, and of both classes of people, Arabs and non Arabs. That doesn't mean that if you're not Arab you're not a worthwhile human being. That's just the way that he split the classification for the sake of the poem and for the sake of him being Arab, right? So these Arabs and people who are not from his... Uh, the Prophet them is the Sayyid of all these people. He is the master of all these people. So the author has gone through the some qualities of praise of the Prophet them. And then he starts to praise him in another way, uh, in, in that he is the master of all of these different categories and types of people, and also different types of places. So when it says he's the master of the two abodes, of both abodes, uh, it could mean different things. But one of them, one of the possibilities is that he is the master of both this life and the hereafter, in the sense that he is the one, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who is the master of this life, because he is the one who gave us guidance in the long lineage and legacy of the Prophets, that had come before him to worship Allah and how to worship Allah and how to submit to him and so on. And he is the Sayyid of the next life as well. The ma- master doesn't work the same in English as Sayyid does in, in Arabic. But it's, it's good enough. Sayyid, but he's the Sayyid also of the next life uh, for a number of reasons. Amongst the most important probably are that he is the one whose shafa'a is sought which will come in the verse after this, that he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from the greatest of his gifts to his people and from the greatest of things that Allah gave him, was that he gave him the ability to intercede for people in the hereafter. So on the day of judgment, when we're standing in front of Allah and we're being held accountable for our deeds, then it is from the honorable rank of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he has been given the position where he can intercede. It's called al-maqam al-mahmood. Right? It's mentioned in the Qur'an And it's also mentioned uh, in a number of hadith The one that's probably most famous to people Or well known to people Is the hadith that we mention After the uh, prayer After the adhan After the adhan So after the adhan we make this dua right? That oh the Lord of this, this complete call and the, and the Lord of the prayer that is coming Then give Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, the maqam mahmud that you promised him maqam al-mahmud and al-ladhi wa'adta you know the, the elevated station that you have promised him and that elevated station is the station where on the day of judgment he sallallahu alayhi wa will be the first to be brought out of the earth and he will be the first to come in front of Allah and when he comes in front of Allah he will prostrate to him and he will uh, praise him in a, in, in a way that uh, he is to be praised Glorified and exalted is he. And then after that, the Prophet ﷺ will be told, you can intercede for who it is that you wish to intercede for. And one of the things that we're going to come to today is, is why that's so important, but it's not, uh, it's not right now, it's in the other verse, so I don't want to jump the gun. Suffice it to say, he is the Sayyid of this life and the next. He's also the Sayyid of the next life, not only because of this position of intercession, on the Day of Judgment, but also because he is the person of the highest rank in the hereafter, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That he is the one who is, we know that he is the best of creation, and he is the closest to Allah, and so he is the, in that sense, he is also the Sayyid of the hereafter. He's also been called the Sayyid of both kinds. Um, you know, that's, there's different ways that that can be thought about as well. But oftentimes it's referred to in relation to he's the Sayyid of the humans and of the jinn. So the jinn have to listen to his message just as the human beings have to listen to his message. Uh, another way to look at it is that he is the Sayyid 
of both the angels and those beings with free will. So the humans and the jinns would be on one side, the angels would be on one side. And the Prophet ﷺ is the Sayyid of the angels because uh, human beings are actually, when they're good, they're actually in a position that's higher than angels. And human beings, when they're bad, they're in a position that's worse than animals. But that is the pendulum swing of the human being. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible uh, to think about the horrible things that human beings can do. And it's absolutely incredible to think about the amazing things that human beings can do. But when human beings are on the higher end, then they have mastery over the angels as well. And we know that Adam salam, when he was created, that Allah commanded the angels to prostrate to him, and they prostrated to him. So this shows the superiority over of Adam salam, over the angels, and of Bani Adam as a uh, category over the angels in general. And the Prophet وسلم, is even more elevated in his rank than Adam salam. Sometimes people say, how can you say that the Prophet ﷺ is in a different, he's a higher rank than other Prophets? And they, then they go and they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, uh, That Allah says that we don't distinguish between any of the messengers. And it's true that we don't distinguish between any of the messengers in that all of them are messengers of God. And all of them have the elevated status and, and position of messengerhood. And all of them have certain qualities that are absolutely essential to prophets, and all of them have them. So for example, every prophet has sidq. Every prophet has absolute trustworthiness and truthfulness. The trust, truthfulness in this case, sidq. And they have absolute truthfulness. That exactly what it is that they are supposed to say, what they say they mean, so on and so forth. This is number one. Number two that they all have is that they all have amana. That they all have trustworthiness. That they can be that, that that's related then to number three, which is tabligh, which means that they all convey the message that they have been entrusted with. And uh, another one is that they have al uh, fitna with a ta, not with a ta. That they have a pure and sharp natural intelligence. It's not necessarily a, a book learning, but it's a type of intelligence that's even more important than book learning which is that they're just really, really sharp. They understand things, they can analyze situations, act accordingly, and so on. So all of the messengers, we don't distinguish between them in that they have these qualities. But the Qur'an itself actually mentions that they're not the same level. So this is why always the verses of the Qur'an have to be understood together. And there's two different places where it comes. Uh, one of them, at least two different places where it comes. One of them is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, glorified and exalted is He, talks about ulul azmi min al-rusul. That He talks about those of azm, those of strong determination from the messengers. And then the verse mentions five of them. That there's Nuh, and there's Ibrahim, and there's Musa, and there's Isa, and there's Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa So these five are ulul azmi min al-rusul. They're actually the five highest level of the messengers. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the beginning of, I believe it's the third juz of the Qur'an, He says, تَنْكُنْ رُسُلُوا فَضَّلْنَا بَعْدُهُمْ عَلَىٰ It's as clear as it can possibly get. تَنْكُنْ رُسُلُوا فَضَّلْنَا بَعْدُهُمْ عَلَىٰ Those are the messengers. We preferred some over others. Which means that they all share in a base level of, of, of greatness, but even still they have higher levels. So all of that was to say that the angels prostrating to Adam salam, indicates that the Prophet wasallam is also the Sayyid of the angels because the Prophet wasallam is even higher in rank than Adam salam. The Prophet wasallam, uh, had this, this, this siyada, this amazing nature and, and status even before uh, his prophethood. People recognized that he came from a special lineage People recognized that he had a special nature, his beautiful character, his beautiful physical form. They recognized his qualities before he even brought them the message of Islam. Which is a really, 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 really important lesson. That they recognized his qualities before uh, they even heard the message from him. He was a sadiq al-ameen. He was the trustworthy and the, the truthful and the trustworthy in 
uh, in Mecca before he was Rasulullah and in, in, in like an actual human being's understanding of time sense you know human the Prophet ﷺ was the messenger of Allah as we said last time from the beginning of creation that uh, the Prophet ﷺ said Kuntu Nabiyan wa Adamu bayna that I was the messenger of God when Adam was between the, the spirit and the body. So in a cosmic sense, he was the messenger of God. But in a human sense, the people of Mecca, as far as they knew, he was the trustworthy and the truthful before they knew him as the messenger of God. And this is very, very important because our, our character and our behavior should speak before anything else. Uh, that's, that's extremely important. He sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He said uh, That I am the master of the children of Adam I am the master of Bani Anas Sayyidu Bani Adam And some of the narrations it says I am the, I'm the master of the Bani of, the, 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 the children of Adam And there's no arrogance in saying that So what he say is that When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Is saying this He's not saying it out of boasting He's saying it out of informing That this is who I am this is who I am and there's no arrogance in it. So he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as mentioned in the in the line of the poem Muhammadun Sayyid al-Kawnayni wa thaqalayni wa al-fariqayni min urbin wa min ajami and also of the Arabs and the non-Arabs. He's the Sayyid of the Arabs and the non-Arabs meaning he wasn't only sent to the Arabs but he was sent to all of mankind and his message uh, was meant to reach all of mankind. The next line of the poem, he said, "Nabiyuna al-Amiru al-Nahi, fala ahadun abarra fi qawlin fi qawli la minhu wala naam." So, "Nabiyuna al-Amiru al-Nahi, fala ahadun abarra fi qawli la minhu wala naami." Our Prophet, who commands and who forbids, and none is more true than him in saying yes or in saying no. So, he is our messenger. And he is the messenger of God, and he is the prophet sent to all of mankind, and he is the most truthful in speech, whether he says yes or whether he says no. It doesn't matter which way it goes, either way he's truthful. In the yes he's truthful, in the no he's truthful. And it is his role and part of his duty and his responsibility to command and to forbid. Did I mention that? I thought I had written that on the side somewhere. He is, it's part of his role to command and to forbid. Oh, I wrote it much later, I'll say it now. So the Prophet ﷺ, they say for example in, in, in law, in ethics, لا يجوز تأخير البيان عن وقت الحاجة That it is not permissible to have a delay uh, of clarification from the Prophet ﷺ beyond the time when it is needed. So what does this mean? This means that the Prophet ﷺ, his responsibility is to clarify to people what is allowed and what is not allowed. Right? And if something happens in front of him, then he has to say something about it. If it's something that has to be stopped, he has to say that it's not okay. Uh, if it's anything else, he can basically... If there's not a need to clarify it, he doesn't have to clarify it. But if it needs to be clarified, he has to clarify and so the different categories of how his guidance comes to us وسلم, is that he, his guidance comes in the form of speech that he said so and so on any number of issues his guidance comes to us in the form of action that he وسلم, did this or did that and actions can have varying indications uh, it's very important so if the Prophet وسلم, did something it generally means that that thing is allowed. It's allowed. Unless it's something that's specific to the Prophet Wasallam, And the, he did have some rules that were specific to him. Like, especially what comes to mind is in marriage, for example. Uh, but he, Wasallam, in general, if he did it, it's allowed. In general, if he didn't do it, it doesn't mean that it's allowed or not allowed. It just means that he didn't do it. Wasallam. A lot of times this one is used in strange ways. So it'll be said like, well, the Prophet ﷺ never did it. But if it's, an act, if it's not an act of worship, 
that doesn't have any particular indication. That can go either way. It can mean that it's okay. It can mean that it's not okay. It can mean it, it's going to depend on other evidences. So the second way that we learn from him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, is in his deeds. The third way that we learn from him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, is in his uh, taqrir, which basically means that something happens in front of him, and he doesn't comment on it. Something happens in front of him, and he doesn't comment on it. It means that it's allowed. Something happens in front of him, he doesn't comment on it, it means it's allowed. So for example, there's a story, uh, I believe it was Khalid ibn Walid, who was eating a lizard, and the Prophet he offered it to the Prophet and he said that it's not from the type of food that he's accustomed to, which basically means, I don't personally want to eat it, but he didn't stop him from eating it, which means that it's permissible to eat it, right? <laughs> These guys are like, see, next, next family vacation. <laughs> so, uh, so these are the three different, th- three of the ways that we can learn from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, amongst others. But in the Sharia, these are the three particular ways. But he sallallahu alaihi wasallam then is there to command, and he's there to uh, prohibit. And it mentions here the stuff that I just said. Basically, that the Prophet has to be truthful. The Prophet has to be trustworthy. That the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, has to have these qualities just like uh, I mentioned that all of the prophets have to have these qualities the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said about truthfulness which is very important which is tied here you know no one is more truthful in saying yes or no than him and he said about truthfulness sallallahu alaihi wasallam that be truthful for very tr- very le- truthfulness leads to goodness and goodness leads to paradise a person will continue to speak the truth and be intent on truthfulness until they are written as a truthful person with Allah. So the idea here is that for all types of things, whether they're good or bad, we take steps towards them uh, and then we realize them over time. That if we want to be a truthful person, for the vast majority of people, you're not just going to be born and like hit the age of 13 and be truthful for the rest of your life. But there's going to be some sort of back and forth with the nafs. It's going to be a back and forth with the, one's desires, with their reputation, with any number of other reasons why they should be truthful or not. And the struggle then to be truthful over an extended period of time is what leads the person to actually become truthful. So they have to be true to themselves, they have to be honest with themselves, they have to be honest with others, and doing that over an extended period of time will then get them to be written as an honest person with Allah in the sense that they will have acquired this character trait. But in the vast majority of cases, it will be acquired. It will be something that we have to work towards. And we can work towards. The important thing to realize about that is that things are possible to achieve. There could be relation. Maybe we look at ourselves and we look at others and we think, wow, that person is just so generous. I don't think I could ever be as generous as they are. Maybe or maybe not. That's not technically our concern in the end of the day, how generous someone else is. I want to be more generous for myself. And if I practice to be more generous over a period of time, you can look back over five years later and you realize, Alhamdulillah, I'm doing a little bit better now than I was five years ago. Maybe I'm a little bit more truthful today than I was ten years ago, or whatever it might be. But we should always be struggling to grow, and we should realize that we can grow. This is part of the ability that Allah has given us, that we can actually grow in a good direction, and that we should be patient. Uh, recently, I asked uh, a person of knowledge, and we consider also to be a person of piety, for advice. And his advice was very simple. And it was basically, ilspir. <laughs> his advice was just be patient. You know, keep doing what you're supposed to do, and just be patient. You can't rush things with Allah. When you do what you're supposed to do, and eventually you get to a better place over time than the one that you're currently in, inshallah, Allah will make all of us from that category of people, inshallah, I mean. Another thing that the Prophet ﷺ said was that someone came to him, they asked him, Ya Rasulullah, can a believer be bakhil? Can a believer be miserly? And he said, yes. The man came to him, he said, Ya Rasulullah, can a believer be cowardly? Can they be cowardly? They don't have this 
bravery. They don't have, you know, they're not always on the forefront to run into whatever might be going on. He said, yes, the person can be a believer and they can be cowardly. Then he asked the Prophet ﷺ, he said, can a person be kathab and a believer? And the Prophet ﷺ said, no. He said, can a person be a liar and also a believer? And the Prophet ﷺ said, no, he cannot. Now, does this mean that if we're in a conversation with someone and we realize that what they're telling us is not entirely truthful as a result of a body of conversations that we've had with them over an extended period of time, does that mean we should cast them off as disbelievers? No. Okay? That's not the point of... First of all, if, the, if whenever we hear things, we're only thinking about other people, that's a very serious indication of a problem. Right? It's not only about other people, but for ourselves. Uh, we shouldn't also realize if we said something that was untruthful, or if we, we happen to lie to someone in a particular situation when lying was not acceptable, then we shouldn't assume that we're not Muslim anymore and we need to do all of these kind of things and so on. But we should seek to improve, but we should realize that honesty and trustworthiness and truthfulness are very, very core issues of faith in Islam. That we have to be uh, as truthful as we possibly can. Ibn Ajiba, he says, due to the immense difficulties and hardships that come with truthfulness, some have said that there is no group among the believers fewer in number than the truthful. Because when you're saying someone is sadiq or someone is siddiq, like they're really truthful. This is not only the level that they're not lying, but it's another level even on top of that. That they always say, say things exactly how they are. They say things exactly how they are, and they don't... You know, they don't worry about the consequences at times. Does that mean that we should be reckless in the saying of truth? No. I mean, we should still have adab and we should still, should still act appropriately in a way that's, uh, you know. But there are times when you have to say the truth and may not be the best case scenario. You know, it might not have the greatest consequences for you, but you have to speak the truth. One of them that comes to mind is in the story of Imam Malik. Many, probably people realize that all four of the great Imams faced uh, oppression from the authorities of their times. All four of the great Imams faced oppression from the authorities of their times. They were, they were abused by the authorities of their times. And Imam Malik, the reason why he was beaten by the ruler at his time. Some people say that the reason why the Maliki school prays with their arms on the side is because he was beaten and he couldn't raise his arms after that. That's a very, that's a very non-Maliki thing to say. That's not why the Maliki school does that, just for the record. Um, but they have their other evidences that they use. If that was the reason why the school did that, then the school wouldn't do that. Right? I mean, think about it. <laughs> the school, if that was the reason... Anyways... We don't have to go off on that. Imam Malik was beaten because he uh, was asked a question about what happens when something happens, like if someone is forced to do something, is it binding? And his answer was no. And the reason that was problematic was that that was... People were using that concept as an excuse for rebelling against the Khalifa. But Imam Malik was asked the question and he has to give the answer to the question because he's Imam Malik. And if someone's coming to him and he knows the answer, then you're not allowed, if, if you're in a position of knowledge, and especially if you're Imam Malik and someone has the question and you have to give him an answer, and you have the answer to the question, it's not permissible for you to hold back the answer. And he knew there's going to be consequences to this. He gave the answer and he got severely beaten by the ruler in that time uh, and eventually that situation passed but the point is that when he says there is no group among the believers fewer in number than the truthful it's because sometimes being truthful is not the easiest thing to do uh, and especially one of the hardest places to be truthful is with oneself one of the hardest way places to be truthful is with oneself uh, to really have enough introspection to understand what's going on with ourselves. Why is it that I'm reacting to this in this way? Why is it that I'm reacting to this in that way? Is this a justified response? 
is this a balanced response? Is this an appropriate response? Is it a principled response? Or is it because of something else? That's really uh, a very tough introspection to engage in, but a very important one to engage in. Another thing that they say about the interpretation of none is more true than he and saying no and saying yes is that it is alluding to the fact that the Prophet ﷺ, when he gave an order, he would be the first one to adhere to it. And when he told people not to do something, he would be the first to abstain from it. And this is something that we, I think, will see later as well, uh, in that the Prophet ﷺ was very keen to act on the things that he taught. And he definitely... Uh, laid that foundation for his companions that uh, they understood that he was the first one to act he was in the trenches with them as I mentioned here on the khutbah on Friday that the Prophet ﷺ was in the trenches with them quite literally that in the battle of the trench as we mentioned here in this class as well when he went into the trench he didn't tell them that he was hungry too but when he descended into the trench it exposed his, his belly and they noticed that he had tied a rock to his stomach to stave off the hunger that he was feeling. Right? So he was feeling the hunger just as the people were feeling the hunger. Um, so he always did what he commanded others to do. Sallallahu alayhi wa The next verse is one of the verses that has caused controversy for some people. And... <clears throat> I want to say this in the kindest way possible, but the more that I'm studying the poem, the more that I'm getting frustrated with the issues people raise with the poem. But I'm going to hold that off until we finish at least this section. But, for example, in this verse, this verse says, هُوَ الْحَبِيبُ الَّذِي تُرْجَى شَفَاعَتُهُ لِكُلِّ هَوْلٍ مِنَ الْأَهْوَالِ مُقْتَحَمِ And... So the first half of it means he is the beloved whose intercession is hoped for. He is the beloved whose intercession is hoped for. The second half of it says, victorious over every terror and disaster. Victorious over every terror and disaster. So one of the issues that people will raise with the poem is this second half of the verse. They say, how can you say that the Prophet them is the one who gives victory over every terror and disaster? Right? I mean, that's, it's Allah who gives victory over every terror and disaster. Right? That's totally true. It is Allah whose aid we seek. It is Allah whose power uh, we, are, we are under. It is Him who is capable of helping in those situations. In, in all situations, subhanahu wa ta'ala. The problem is that there's the first half of the verse. And it's, it's as if like, there's this very... So the first half of the verse is, he is an Habib, he is the beloved, whose intercession is sought on the Day of Judgment. Right? This is referring to the Day of Judgment. And then it says, victorious over every terror and disaster. The meaning is related. The meaning is related. Meaning that all of the terror and all of the difficulty and all of the disaster and everything that is faced on the Day of Judgment, the Prophet ﷺ is the one whose intercession is sought to overcome all of that terror on the Day of Judgment, which is what we were just talking about, in the sense that the Prophet ﷺ was given by Allah. Allah is the primary source of everything. Allah is the one who makes these decisions. He was given by Allah the ability to intercede. Not that He Himself is some sort of pseudo-divine character, but He is the Prophet ﷺ who was given this position by Allah. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that when we get to it. But before it, there's uh, this concept, which Ibn Ajiba is really, his name is perfect because he's really Ajib. The stuff that he says is incredible. Uh, so he says, Here the author, Allah have mercy on him, says that our Prophet is the beloved and Habib to the exclusion of others who have attained the station of intimate friendship. And the station of the beloved is higher than the station of the intimate friend, Khalil. For example, Ibrahim salam. So the Prophet is referred to as Al-Habib. He is the beloved of Allah. And 
Ibrahim السلام, is referred to as Al Khalil. He's Khalilullah. He's the intimate friend of Allah. And then Ibn Ajiba goes on to say that the Habib has a higher position than the Khalil. And he gives a number of verses from the Quran comparison. That's really just incredible, subhanAllah. He gives six of them. So first one, he says, The Khalil, the intimate friend, arrived unto the divine through the intermediary of his rational deduction. So Ibrahim alayhi salam uh, is said about him in the Quran, And thus did we show Ibrahim the kingdom of the heavens. So the idea is that he was shown the kingdom of the heavens, and from his, his being able to see the kingdom of the heavens, then he was able to really know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he says, The beloved, on the other hand, attained to the divine without an intermediary. And he was at a distance of two bows length or nearer. Qabr Qawseini aw adana in Surah Al-Najm. Right? So there's a distinction. This is how the Khalil got his knowledge of Allah. And this is how Al-Habib got his knowledge of Allah. The second one is he says, The Khalil got his forgiveness, the intimate friend's forgiveness was expressed in terms of aspiration as proven by Allah's words. And I aspire that he forgive my error. And I think it is. Yeah. So I aspire that he will forgive my error. But the beloved's forgiveness was expressed in terms of certainty where Allah said, uh, you know, so that so that Allah can forgive you your past and future sins. So in the first one, Ibrahim salam is hoping for that forgiveness. In the second one, that forgiveness is already attributed to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, given to him. The third, the intimate friend said, "And disgrace me not upon the day they are resurrected." And disgrace me not on the day they are resurrected. Uh, this is in, I can give you the verses if you want. That's in 2687. 2687. But Allah the Most High said about the Beloved, On the day when Allah will not disgrace the Prophet and those who believe with him. 66 verse 8. So he's saying, don't disgrace me on that day. And then Allah is saying about the Prophet them on the day of judgment, that... Uh, on that day, Allah will not disgrace the Prophet and those who believed with him. Allah make us from them, inshallah, ameen. Uh, the fourth is that during his trial, the Khalil, he said, Hasbi Allah wa ni'mal wakil. He said, Allah is sufficient for me. And the beloved, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was told, O Prophet, Hasbuk Allah. <laughs> he was told, O Prophet, Allah is sufficient for you. So again, it's Ibrahim is saying it, and the Prophet is being told it from Allah Himself. This is Allah is sufficient for you. Number five, the intimate friend said, "And grant me a reputation of honor among later generations." And the Prophet the beloved, was told. Uh, uh, and we elevated your name. We elevated the mentioning of your name. So Ibrahim is asking for the elevation of his name. And the Prophet ﷺ is being told, your name was elevated. Sixth, the intimate friend, Ibrahim ﷺ, he said, And keep me and my children from the worship of idols. And keep me and my children from the worship of idols. Keep us away from this. And the Prophet ﷺ, the beloved, was told, Allah intends only to remove from you impurity, O people of the household. You know, the people Ahnid Bayt. So it's only that Allah has intended to remove this impurity from you. So in all of those situations, you have Al Khalil and you have Al Habib. And both of them are obviously in extremely highly elevated ranks. But even still, in all of those different situations, Al Habib is referred to uh, at a higher level. Then Ibn Ajiba says this point which is extremely important. He says, since the rank of the beloved is tremendous and his station is lofty, it is his intercession that is hoped for. And that is because the beloved's word is listened to, his, spirit, his speech is heard, 
and his intercession is accepted. And the love that the recipient of intercession has for the intercessor is the most likely cause for the intercession to be accepted and for his needs or her needs to be fulfilled. So this is the major point that he's trying to make. Why is it that people like Imam al-Busiri, why is it that all of these scholars throughout history spend so much time praising and trying to increase their hearts in the love of the Prophet them is because of this point. It's because we... What do we have to hope for? You know, what can we hope for other than this? Our deeds are not going to be enough. No matter how much we try. We know ourselves. We come up short on a lot of things. So what is it? The humility of these people is that their major hope is of course the forgiveness of Allah. And from the forgiveness of Allah is the intercession of the Prophet them. So it's his intercession, as we already talked about before, is mentioned in a number of hadith collections from Bukhari and Muslim and others. And he says the Prophet's intercession is hoped for during the onset of the ghastly terrors, momentous events and panic-inducing calamities that are burdensome and difficult to bear with patience. So he basically says that all of this victorious over the horrors and the tragedies and all of these things is referring to the intercession of the Prophet on the Day of Judgment, which is the beginning half of the verse. That's why, I mean, it's very clear what the reference is. And Qadi Iyad uh, says in Ikman al-Mu'alim, it's not in Ashifa, but it's in Ikman al-Mu'alim, um, which is his commentary on the collection of Sahih Muslim. He says the Prophet ﷺ has five forms of major intercession. He says the Prophet ﷺ has five forms of major intercession. One of them is that he will be granting people respite from standing before Allah in judgment. So he'll intercede and he'll make that standing uh, facilitated. The second form is that he will cause people to enter paradise without reckoning. So he'll intercede on their behalf and Allah will enter them into paradise without reckoning. The third is that uh, he will prevent those who are meant to go, his intercession, I should say, will prevent those who are meant to go to, to experience hell from going to hell. That maybe the person is a believer and they were supposed to go to hell in order to make up for some of the deficiencies that they had and then they would come to paradise but his intercession will get them uh, to not go to hell in the first place the fourth is that he will uh, lessen the punishment his intercession will lessen the punishment in hell of those who were doomed to go there from the believers and the fifth is that his intercession will Elevate the rank of the person in paradise. So maybe the person is supposed to go to a certain level and it will go higher than that. He doesn't give. It's Qadi Iyad. Qadi Iyad is very well known. He's, you know, I don't know how to explain these things, but if it doesn't sit well with you, it's okay. You can just pause with it and live with it over time. Inshallah, you see how things develop. But Qadi Iyad and Ikmal al-Mu'alim is one of the more famous commentaries on Sahih Muslim. It's probably the second most famous. The first is Imam Nawawi, the second is Qadi Iyad. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ was also compassionate towards his nation. And he had great mercy for them. And he actually, uh, it's, it's said in a hadith that every messenger is given a prayer that is answered. And the Prophet ﷺ delayed his prayer for the Day of Judgment. So he decided to save it. Uh, he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, each prophet is granted a dua that is answered and by which he supplicates. But I have saved my dua for my ummah in the hereafter. So he saved that prayer for the hereafter. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The next verse also further emphasizes the true meaning of the verse before it. So again, one of the issues that people have here is that they say that you're elevating by praising the Prophet ﷺ in this way, you're elevating him uh, in a way that he said not to. He said, don't elevate 
me in the way that the Christians elevated their prophet, right? But this is this is not doing that. Nobody's saying that the Prophet ﷺ is divine. Saying that he has the right of intercession as Allah gave it to him. And then the next verse even clarifies it even more. It's دَعَا إِنَ اللَّهِ فَالْمُسْتَمْسِكُونَ بِهِ مُسْتَمْسِكُونَ بِحَبَلٍ غَيْرِ مُنْفَصِمِ So he says, and he called people to God, so those, who fo- so those who hold fast to him are holding fast to a rope that shall never break. So basically what it's saying is that, where did he call to? He called to God. So if people hold on to that, then they're holding on to something that doesn't break, because they're holding on to what's connected to God, right? It's, it's, it's very clear where that's going. It's obvious that the Prophet ﷺ called people to Allah. The Prophets in their entirety were created from uh, were created for mercy. Their acts of mercy from the from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and the Prophet ﷺ is the greatest manifestation of that mercy. And the Prophet ﷺ called unto Allah with great insight and firm proofs, and he urged others to travel the path of right guidance and to shun lowly paths. And we should always remember when we're going on our journey towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this is a journey. And we should be trying to do the best that we can as we're going down it. Um, he didn't leave anything that draws nearer to Allah except by calling people to it. And anything that would take people away from Allah, he clarified that to them. And they said, uh, this is an interesting statement. I had never heard this before, what he says here. It's quoted from Abu Abbas and Mursi, but he says that the Prophet ﷺ raised the banner of the religion, he completed its order, he established its obligations, and just as he explained legal rulings to the servants, he also expanded their horizons of understanding. So not only did he tell them what is allowed, what is not allowed, but he deepened their ability to understand the world, uh, to the point that one narrator even said, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, passed away and we would gain some knowledge from the very birds flying in the sky. So basically what it's saying is that the Prophet وسلم, had unlocked their capacity for wisdom and had unlocked their capacity for understanding and learning and drawing reflections and, and coming to deeper knowledge of existence in such a way that they would even look at the birds in the sky and they would learn something. Right? So their, their hearts and their minds were so refined by the Prophet them that everything in life became a means of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a means for gaining knowledge uh, and understanding. And it is the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He takes people and especially His beloved from stations, one station to the next. And so when the Prophet ﷺ had completed his, mes- his mission, he took him to be in the hereafter. And it is those who come after the Messenger of Allah ﷺ who are then responsible for calling unto his way. Right? But in the end, it is to Allah that he had called. The point of the verse is that it was to Allah that he called. Um, we'll do this next verse and then we'll end after this one inshaAllah. It's a very beautiful verse. Uh, and then we'll stop at one of my favorites that I had mentioned in the beginning. The favorite one that I had mentioned in the beginning was They all seek something from Allah's Messenger, handfuls from the sea, or small sips of drizzle. You know, they get some drops or they get the whole sea, but everyone's benefiting from the Prophet. The verse that we're going to cut, that, that's where we'll stop. But the verse that we're going to cover on is uh, the, the last one that we'll cover is That he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, excelled the other prophets in form, in his physical form, and in his character, in his khalq, and in his khuluq, in his physical form, as well as his character. وَلَمْ يُدَانُوهُ فِي إِلْمٍ وَلَا كَرَمِي And they didn't come near him in his knowledge or in his nobility and generous, generosity. His nobility and his generosity were at a different level. 
So Ibn Ajiba says that Busayri has now praised the Prophet وسلم, as being the Sayyid. He has praised him as being Al-Amr, as being the one who commands. He has praised him as being Al-Nahi, the one who forbids. He's praised him as being Al-Habib, the one who is beloved to Allah. And he's praised him as being Al-Da'i, the one who calls to Allah. Da'a in Allah. He called to Allah. And now he goes on to say that no one else can actually come close to him in his beauty or in his uh, character or in his knowledge or in his generosity. So as to his beauty, we'll read the descriptions. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ali Abu Huraira and Al-Bara ibn Azib radiallahu anhum ajma'een said that the Prophet had a fair complexion with a slightly rounded face and with a broad forehead and a thick beard that reached his chest. They described him as having broad chest and broad shoulders and as being of medium stature, neither excessively tall nor short. Yet when walking with anyone, he would always seem taller. When he laughed, it was mostly smiles, revealing white teeth, and when he spoke, a light would be seen emanating from between his teeth. Al-Bara said, I saw him wearing a red shawl, and I have never seen a more beautiful sight than him. Abu Hurairah said, I never saw anyone more beautiful than the emissary of Allah, and it was as if the sun shone upon his face, and when he smiled, his light would shine upon the walls. Umm Ma'bad, a woman, described him as following. I met a man of visible radiance whose appearance was beautiful, his face bright, with neither protruding ribs nor a small head. He was handsome and fair. His eyes were a deep black color and his eyelashes were lush. His voice was soft and smooth. The whiteness of his eyes was bright and his pupils were very black. His eyebrows were fine at the corners and connected. His neck was long and his beard was full. When he was silent, he appeared dignified. And when he spoke, he was eminent and crowned with magnificence. His speech was sweet. His words were precise, neither too little nor too much, like a string of pearls flowing down. Ali said, Whoever saw him unexpectedly would be filled with awe. Whoever came to know him would love him. Whoever would describe him would say, Neither before him nor after him have I seen anybody like him. He also had beautiful scent and fragrance. Anas radiallahu anh said, I have never smelled any uh, cologne or musk or anything sweeter than the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Jabir mentioned how, how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam once touched his cheek. And he said, I experienced a coolness and fragrance from his hand. His hand smelled as if he had dipped it in a perfumer's bottle, whether he was wearing scent or not. When he shook someone's hand, a pleasant fragrance would stay with that person for the rest of the day. He would pat the heads of children and any child who received a pat from him would stand out from the other children due to the fragrance. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He also had inner character traits such as knowledge, religion, forbearance, patience, gratitude, justice, renunciation, humility, pardon, temperance, generosity, bravery, shyness, respectability, amiability, silent reflection, dignity, mercy, and filial piety, among others. He embodied all of these traits in the most perfect way. And descriptions of these in more detail can be found in the Shifa of Qadi Iyad, which has been translated. It's called the Shifa in English. But he said something beautiful. He said, To detail all the elements of his character would prove extremely lengthy. So whoever would like to gain healing in this, let them refer to the Shifa. And the Shifa is, it means healing. So he says, whoever would like to gain healing and the description of the Prophet them, then they should go to the book which is called the Healing, the Shifa. As for his vast knowledge and uh, of, of all types of things, uh, in Busiri, in another poem, he says, he surpasses all creation in knowledge and forbearance. He is an ocean unencumbered by difficulties. So what he says about the knowledge is essentially that the Prophet ﷺ was given from Allah Himself knowledge of all types of things that he didn't actually have to learn. 
It, w- it wasn't a knowledge that he learned. He was just given it from Allah. And uh, this is probably one of the reasons why many great people achieve the things that they achieved as well. Is that they got gifts from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the Prophet ﷺ was the greatest example of that. Especially, of course, in the Qur'an. And he was also not reachable in terms of his generosity and his uh, beneficence. So his, er, his munificence and his generosity. So they say, for example, that the Prophet ﷺ never refused anything when he was asked for it. And he was the most generous of mankind and the most generous time for him was in Ramadan when Jibreel would meet him. So when Jibreel would meet him, he was actually more generous. And in another narration it says that the Prophet um, used to increase in his generosity and everything in Ramadan when Jibreel would visit him. And one of the things that's interesting about this is the benefit of good company. We were talking about that before we started. One of the benefits of good company is that it elevates the person in doing good. It motivates them to do more, it motivates them to be better, it motivates them to push themselves. So even maybe people can become great people just from being around great people. They're going to put in effort. They're probably not going to stay around great people for very long if they're not putting in effort. Right? They just It won't work. But that relationship can have great benefits. So the Prophet ﷺ in the month of Ramadan, he spends more time with Jibreel ﷺ than he normally would. And he's more generous in this month. And he spends even more time with the Qur'an in the month of Ramadan than he normally would. So there's two benefits here. There's the benefit of good company, and there's the benefit of knowledge. Both of them actually elevate the person and help them to be better. One time a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he asked for an immense amount of sheep that were between two mountains in a valley. And the Prophet ﷺ gave to him and he gave to him and he gave to him and he went back to his people and he told them, Aslimu, because the Prophet he told them, enter Islam because this man Muhammad gives the giving of someone who does not fear poverty. He's, he, there's a different, this is different. He gives in a different way, wasallam. And of course we know the evidence of his generosity and what his wife Khadija radiallahu anha said to him when the revelation began and he said he went to her and he told her I fear for myself and she told him no by Allah, Allah will never forsake you. You maintain ties with your kinsfolk, you are kind to your neighbors, you are charitable to the poor and you are hospitable to guests and you defend the truth. Allah will not forsake you. These are the things that you do, Allah will not forsake you. The greatest act of generosity of the Prophet ﷺ is an act of generosity that maybe we don't realize because, you know, we have to know it from the text. Which is that it said about the Prophet ﷺ that he said, on the day of judgment, everyone will be running around and they'll be saying, nafsi, nafsi. Literally, selfie, selfie, but we won't get into that right now. But they'll be saying, myself, myself. Like they're gonna, everyone's going to be running around on the Day of Judgment, and they're worried about themselves. And the Prophet ﷺ will say, Ummati, Ummati. Say, my nation, my nation. Even his greatest act of generosity is that on that day, in the most difficult of circumstances, he's still going to be worried about his people. Uh, rather than himself sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam Allahumma salli wa sallam wa zid wa barik ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen